Amen. I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 21. I'm going to read verses 1 to 27 this morning. Listen to the word of the Lord. When we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. Having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. Through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. When our days were our, our days there were ended, we departed and went on a, our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city, and kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemaeus, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. The next day we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I'm ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Since we, and since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem, and some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard it, they glorified God, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may share, shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men and the next day 
he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we give you praise. We give you glory. We give you honor. We give you thanks for your word. By it, through the power of your spirit, Lord, we are transformed. We are renewed. We are, our, our path is lit, lit up where we should go, what we should do, how we should walk. So we give you praise and glory and honor and thanks. And we ask this morning that you would indeed illuminate our path, that you would indeed show us the way that we are to walk, and that by your word, through the power of your spirit, you will continue to do that work of making us more like you in every way we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus once said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, will save it. Though the apostle Paul was not there when those words were spoken, his own life bore testimony to his commitment to these words, a commitment he reinforced with his words to those who were weeping about his decision to go to Jerusalem. Paul spoke in verse 13 of Acts 21, for I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Discipleship, brothers and sisters, has a cost. Discipleship has a cost, and that cost is our lives. Whether we live or die, our lives now, if our faith is in Jesus, our lives now belong to Christ. We are His, and He is ours. Whether we live or die, our lives belong to him. We've been united to him in his death that we might also share in his life. This, again, is summed up by Paul in words spoken to the Philippian church where he writes in chapter 3 of that letter, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, that I may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This fellowship, brothers and sisters, and suffering that leads to resurrection is for all who hope in Christ. Yet this general reality, this general reality of suffering for Christ, of taking up our cross, has a particular reference in the story in front of us. Before us this morning, as we consider the why of what Paul is about to face in Jerusalem, why Paul is going to be bound in Jerusalem, why he is going to endure imprisonment and trial, why he is going to be beaten again and threatened with flogging by the Romans, why is all of this about to happen to the Apostle Paul? It is because Paul has been preaching a gospel— a gospel that not only tells Jewish and Gentile sinners that Christ has come to save them, it absolutely announces that truth, 
but that tells them that in Christ, they are now one new people. That in Christ, they are now one new humanity under the rule and reign of God's King, Jesus. I want to suggest over the next couple of sermons, actually, that it is this gospel, the gospel that preaches Jesus as the end to a segregated church that is actually the reason that not only is Paul going to be in trouble in Jerusalem, but that the church in our day will also face trouble. Paul's meeting with James, in fact, shows us that despite the letter that had been sent out to all the churches that we read about back in Acts 15, and despite the growth of both the Jerusalem Christian community and the Gentile Christian community, the practical living out of reconciliation in the church was still causing conflict. There was still a faction, in point of fact, in the Jerusalem church that were stirring up trouble that were undermining the efforts to bring these two communities together into one family. And the result was that Paul was about to face the fury of those who were bound to protecting their own narrative. He was about to face the fury of those who were bound to protecting their own cultural identity over the new identity that God had accomplished through the work of his son and our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's friends, in point of fact, knew that Jerusalem meant danger. They knew that Jerusalem meant suffering. They knew that Jerusalem meant trouble for Paul because of the gospel he had been preaching that says that Christ has come to set you free from sin and death, and he has come to bring you into one family together under the rule and reign of Jesus Christ the Lord. Luke is going to tell us later, in fact, in the chapter And in the next chapter, that that danger was centered in a commitment from some to protect their own cultural identity over the new one that the gospel of Christ creates. Now, here's the question for us this morning to ponder and that this text in front of us answers. How do we remain faithful to the unifying gospel of Jesus when we are confronted with the dangers of doing so? How do we remain faithful to the unifying gospel of Jesus Christ when we are confronted with the dangers of doing so? How do we, like the Apostle Paul, remain steadfast in our loyalty to Jesus' kingdom agenda when we are under threat, when we are in danger? And I ask this because the truth is that if we're going to remain faithful, then one of the issues that we're actually going to have to do battle with is fear. One of the issues that we're going to have to do battle with if we're going to remain faithful to Christ, faithful to this gospel message that we're called to preach, one of the things we're going to have to do battle with is fear. Right underneath, right underneath the weeping and the pleading with Paul not to go to Jerusalem is fear. And right underneath the concern of James and the elders in Jerusalem is fear. What's going to happen to us individually if we keep pressing this gospel? What's going to happen to us if we keep telling people that not only has Jesus come to save you and set you free in your relationship with God, but he's also come to bring you together with people from among the nations of the earth and make you one family? 
What's going to happen if we keep pressing that gospel? What's going to happen to us individually? And here's the other thing. What's going to happen to our cultural identities if we keep pressing this gospel? These fears, I want to suggest to you, are there in both of these settings in which Paul finds himself. And his response gives us the answer to how we deal with these underlying fears. And the answer to this first fear, what's going to happen to us if we keep pressing this gospel? The answer to this first fear is this, that you and I need to learn how to rest in God's will. You and I need to learn how to rest in God's will. Remember what Paul said back in Acts 20, uh, verse 23, he said this, and now behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But watch this. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And in the text in front of us, we hear Paul declare, for I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. What are, what are, what are we hearing here, brothers and sisters? What are, we, what are we hearing? Well, we're hearing the words of a man who knows that he is in the will of God. We are, we're not hearing stubbornness. We're not hearing hard-headedness. We're, we, we aren't hearing someone with a martyr syndrome. No, we are hearing a believer who recognizes that he is in the will of God. We are hearing one who knows that the path that has been laid out for him has been laid out for him by God, and he is committed to walking in that path. You see, there is something about knowing that you are in the will of God that quiets your fears. There, there, there's something about knowing that the path that you are walking is the path that God has laid out for you that actually calms your anxiety and your fears. Paul loved his friends, and he loved his co-workers in the gospel. The, the, the text clearly states in verse 13 that he was deeply moved by the weeping of his friends and, and his companions who tried to dissuade him from going up to Jerusalem. And these were not the first ones to do so because we're told back in verse 4 that the disciples in Tyre also tried to persuade Paul from going. They even brought their wives and children to see him off, likely knowing that they would never see him again. Yet while Paul was deeply moved by all of this, he could not be persuaded from his course. He could not be persuaded from bearing testimony in Jerusalem to what he had seen God do among the Gentiles. He would not be dissuaded from telling them about the one who delivers, about the one who was taking men and women and children from among all the nations and joining them together in one family under the rule and reign of Christ. When you know, when you know that you are in the will of of God, that you are doing his work, that you are on the path that he has set you on, it will quiet your fears. I just came to tell you this morning 
that the will of God for us as his people is actually not hidden from us. God doesn't actually hide his will from us. He actually tells us what it is that he has called us to as his people individually and as his people corporately. Your personal path and and our corporate path has actually been already set by God. Go and tell the world about Jesus. Isn't that what we're told by our Lord himself? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You do not have to wonder what your purpose is in this world. You do not have to wonder what path God has set out for you in this world. The path he has set out for you is the path of declaring this glorious gospel that is in the face of Jesus Christ that says if you believe in him, you will be set free from sin and death. You will be brought into the family of God from among all the nations of the earth. And when you know that you are walking in that will of God, when you know that the Lord is with you, come trial, come tribulation, come hardship, come pain, come persecution, come death, It doesn't matter if I am in the will of God, then I know that he has got me. (laughs) The call here, brothers and sisters, isn't different from that which Paul embraced. Paul could not be persuaded to turn from the path that God had set him on. Paul knew that the gospel he was preaching, the gospel which said that in Jesus, Jew and Gentile are now members of the same family together, was in fact the true gospel. He had preached that gospel everywhere else, and so he was not about to be persuaded not to go to Jerusalem and preach it there as well. The call for us, brothers and sisters, is that we are not persuaded from this gospel either. I'm just going to tell you what I'm sure you already know, that there are some contexts in which preaching this gospel will get you in trouble. There are some contexts in which preaching this gospel will get you in trouble. There are some places where people won't want to hear about a Jesus who reconciles. As our culture grows more divided, so will the opposition to a gospel that calls folk to love each other among, across all the lines of division. Some of you will feel that most intently in your extended family relationships. Some of you will feel it in your Christian friendship circles. Some of you will feel it from your neighbors and in your neighborhood. And the potential for conflict, for persecution, for rejection, for hatred will bring with it the real experience of fear, a fear that can cause you to turn away from the Lord's purpose. So in the face of all those very real places of turmoil where persecution awaits you for committing yourself to the Lord's unifying gospel, the call is to cling to the truth that your commitment to this gospel is in fact in keeping with the will of the Lord. And if you're in God's will, then God has got you and you're okay <laughs> and you don't need to be afraid. Amen, people of God. So we're called, as we face that fear, that question of what will happen to us for preaching this gospel, we are invited and reminded to rest in the will of God, the will that God has laid out for us as his people. But secondly, we're called not only to rest in God's will, but we're called to rest in his his acceptance 
to rest in his acceptance, to rest in his will on the one hand and to rest in his acceptance on the other. One of the dangers in proclaiming the unifying gospel of Jesus confronts us with the reality of pain through trial and persecution and suffering and the like. Knowing we are in God's will enables us to confront that danger. But the other danger, the other danger is the danger of loss. We call this the danger of loss, the loss of our identity. I've always struggled, I'll tell you the truth this morning, I've always struggled with Paul's willingness to make these compromises like the one he makes in the text before us. I've always struggled with Paul's willingness to make this compromise that he makes in the text before us. From the circumcision of Timothy to this story in front of us, I've always struggled with what looks on its face like selling out. Y'all know what I mean by selling out? Y'all know what that, y'all know what that phrase means? It looks as if Paul is actually selling out from the gospel he has been preaching, which says that Jew and Gentile are meant to be in one family together. He's now, he's now seemingly making a concession here in the story of his interaction with James and the elders there. And I've struggled with his willingness to make these compromises. Paul's actions on their face feel like a compromise that he shouldn't actually make. After all, Paul, as the apostle to the Gentiles, had come to understand that circumcision, as well as the other culturally identifying Jewish customs, were not the means through which one would be accepted into the family of God. And I say culturally identifying customs because it's clear from James that there are specific aspects of the law that he has in mind when he is telling Paul about the concerns his Jewish brothers and sisters had about his teaching. It doesn't appear that they were accusing Paul of violating the moral law in his teaching. Instead, the concern is circumcision. The concern is customs that sort of cultural customs, if you will, that the Jewish people had adopted that made them who they were. Circumcision and likely some of the other ceremonial customs that went along with it. And yet Paul knew that entry into the covenant community no longer required the keeping of the old ceremonies, which were a shadow of the things to come. Indeed, it was the apostle Paul who would tell the Colossians this, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So Paul already knew that, 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 that these customs, that these rituals, that, that, that these things that they did were not, were not a marker of being a part of the new community under the rule and reign of Christ. So why is he making this concession? Paul understood the gospel, folks. He understood that justification was by grace through faith in Christ alone. So why even bother going through the motions here? Why do this? By the way, we're going to see next week that the compromise that James and the elders in Jerusalem asked Paul to make actually failed to accomplish the peace that the elders in Jerusalem were hoping for. So when you look at that text later, you read it, it actually didn't work. So why do it? Why do it 
at all. And it hit me. It hit me in my study and reflection on this text what Paul is actually doing. You see, brothers and sisters, while our cultural identities do not count as an entryway into, into the covenant community of God, while we don't get into God's kingdom because of who we are ethnically, the Lord nonetheless accepts us within our ethnic identities. I want to say that again. While our ethnic and cultural identities do not matter in terms of the entryway into the covenant community, the Lord nonetheless accepts us within our unique cultural and ethnic identities into his family. Indeed, I would say to you this morning that the beauty of the gospel is that it unites people under the lordship of Christ without obliterating their identities. I'm going to say that again. It unites people under, the gospel unites people under the rule and reign of Christ without obliterating their ethnic identities. Instead, God brings us into his family from among all the nations of the earth, and through faith in Jesus, he weaves us together into a beautiful community of believers from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, teaching them how to love God and how to love each other. And he does this without tearing asunder the uniqueness of who we are in our ethnic communities. You see, we think we are going to lose something if we give ourselves over to this call to cross-cultural community. Yet the truth is we actually gain something because as we come together within all these unique ethnic and cultural identities, we actually see the beauty of the glory of God in other image bearers who he has created in his image and after his likeness. We gain something. We gain the blessing of seeing and participating in the image of God as it is displayed in the incredible diversity of the human family. Willie Jenkins, who, I, who I've quoted before, says this in his commentary on Acts. He says, we must see a spirit that joins Jew and Gentile and joins peoples without destroying peoples. The spirit would draw us into that newness where peoples don't lose themselves, but find themselves through the addition of others. You know why Paul, you know why Paul did what he did? It was, it was because Paul knew that God loved him as a Jew. He didn't have to give up his Jewish heritage to join the movement of God to create a family among all the nations of the earth. Paul, in fact, spoke to his love of his own people, declaring, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to the sonship. Theirs is the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Messiah, who, was, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. The reason Paul, brothers and sisters, could do what he did the reason he could make this concession was because Paul knew that God loved the people of Israel, but he also knew that God loved the Gentiles within all the unique cultures from which they also descended. 
the glory of the gospel dispels the fear that we will actually lose ourselves by becoming a part of this cross-cultural community of God's people. And make no mistake about it, what the people in Jerusalem were afraid of is that the incoming of all these Gentiles was going to somehow obliterate their own cultural identity. And Paul says, no, that's not the way it works. The gospel actually brings us together among all the nations of the earth and teaches us how to love each other and our God together. Amen, people of God. So you know what the real call is here? It is to resist trying to be someone else. It's to resist trying to be someone else. It's to resist the idea that we have to assimilate to be accepted by God. When Paul spoke of becoming all things to all men, he wasn't saying that he stopped being a Jew. Paul was very comfortable, in fact, in his Jewish skin. You know why? It's because he knew God was comfortable with him in his Jewish skin. The difference for Paul from so many of his opponents was that he also knew that God was comfortable with all his other image bearers in the skins in which he had created them as well. So Paul, when he related to his Gentile brothers and sisters, did not feel the need to make them Jewish before he could accept them, worship with them, and live alongside of them. Yet he also didn't need to throw away his own culture either. He could be a Jew and still be committed to living in cross-cultural community, knowing that in the faces of and through the lives of others who were not from his culture, he would see and experience the glory of God. I want to tell you something this morning, that God has accepted us, frees us to accept each other. I'm going to say that again to you, that God has accepted us, frees us to accept one another. And it also frees us to accept who God has made us, ethnically, culturally, nationally. I don't need to throw away my cultural heritage, yet I also don't get to elevate that heritage above others or make acceptance of others a matter of assimilation. And that's good news. You know what I love when I look out over this congregation? I love seeing the faces of those who do not look like me. I love seeing the faces of those who are from other cultures and other backgrounds and other peoples. And I love the fact that we are learning in this context how to love each other across all of those lines of division. And we're learning how to love our God together across all of those lines of division. You don't have to give up who you are to be a part of the kingdom of the living God. In fact, the glory of the gospel is that it brings people together from among all the nations of the earth under the rule and reign of Jesus. This is the glory of the gospel. And so Paul was very comfortable in his own skin, and yet he was also very comfortable being with his brothers and sisters who were in different skins. This is the gospel. And what we have to learn how to do, brothers and sisters, is we have to learn as we face those fears, the fear of what will happen to us as we continue to preach this gospel, we need to learn how to rest in the will of God. 
knowing that what we are doing is in fact what God has called us to do. But we also need to learn how to rest in God's acceptance of us, not believing that we have to be someone else to be a part of the kingdom of God. No, God loves us as he has created us, and we don't have to give into that fear that we're going to lose ourselves just to be a part of the cross-cultural community of God's people. Amen. We're actually going to learn what it means to love, worship, and serve our God together across all those lines of division. So amen and praise God for what he is doing in the church. So how do we remain faithful to the unifying gospel of Jesus when we're confronted with the dangers of doing so? What do we do with the fears that come as we are confronted with those dangers? First, brothers and sisters, we must rest in the Lord's will. We're called to bear testimony to Jesus to make disciples from among the nations in his name. When we are committed to this work, we are in God's will, and we can have confidence that he is with us and in the midst of it. Second, we must rest in God's acceptance, knowing that in the gospel, God does not obliterate our identity, but instead draws us into his family of image bearers from among all the nations of the earth, showing us his glory in the face of that diverse human community created through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, our King. Amen and praise God. Let's pray. Father, we give you praise and glory and honor and thanks that we don't have to fear. We don't have to be afraid, Lord, of what will happen to us as we preach and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ that tells us that in him we are set free from sin and death, but that we are also drawn together into the family of God from among all the nations of the earth. We don't have to fear because we know we are in your will, and we don't have to fear because we know you have accepted us in Jesus Christ, our Lord and King. And so we pray this morning, Father, that we would indeed rest, that we would rest in your will for us, that we would rest in your acceptance of us, Lord, and that we would worship you for the good news of the gospel, which is true today, was yesterday, and will be tomorrow. We give you praise, glory, and honor. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. And thank God. Let's stand and let's sing together.